0: Please hold for Armchair Adventurer. That's not the kind of podcast we are.
1: The mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages at this time. Goodbye. Tragically, unless you have not listened to the most recent Tinfoil Adventure, this is the first time if you have listened, this is the second episode that Paul is absent for. Unfortunately, he's currently going through. Menopause. You see, <laughs> yeah, <he's up. laughs> Paul is currently in the throes of menopause. He is currently moving. Won't disclose where, but it's somewhere near the Tonopah test range in Nevada. <laughs> what? That's a little callback to the tin foil episode that you have no chance Uh-oh. to listen to yet, because at the time of this recording, it has not been edited, but. You didn't send me the raw? Come on. Regardless of whether you've listened or not, you're here now, and this episode is the continuation of our series on business magnets. Magnates, I guess. I've been saying magnets my entire life, but everybody else seemed to have said magnate in the last episode, which was a little embarrassing for me.
2: (laughs) Nobody noticed.
1: Oh, I did. I did. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Paul calls. I did. This one is about Cornelius Vanderbilt, who... You've probably heard of, if only from the university, but you probably heard of the family name. He lived before, or I guess, yeah, well, he, did, he was definitely born before John D. Rockefeller and his business prowess came to fruition before. Correct. But of course, John D. Rockefeller, a little more famous, so we had to talk about him first. Now, Dan, I believe you have the first carrying of the torch. Is that correct? You bet. And where are you going to start us off then?
0: Uh well I got a little bit of like early business adventure information just kind of where he you know got his feet wet and then I also have some sorry <laughs> how dare you some very interestingly horrific personal information <laughs>
1: <laughs> there might be a couple more of those sorry
3: <sighs> do you have anything about his uh, family history because I have a little um, bit if you if you don't. Yeah, why don't you start with that then? All right. Well, um, Cornelius Vanderbilt. If you couldn't figure it out yeah. by the Vander part in his name, was a was Dutch by heritage. Um, his earliest ancestors came to the United States uh, before it was even the United States. They settled in uh, New Netherland, which is now uh, New York, um, and they were extremely poor. They were indentured servants, um, which kind of sets the tone for kind of. I mean, the rest of Vanderbilt's kind of societal interactions, he was never really he certainly was not born into wealth uh, and had to, you know, he' was very much a self-made uh, magnate, if you will. Um, and uh, even though, I mean, his parents weren't quite as dirt poor as the indentured servants that had uh, come to North America originally. They were um, poor farmers. Um, I believe they're in Staten Island, if I'm not mistaken. Somewhere in there. They were in the New York area. Um, I do know that um, Cornelius' father, uh, on top of being a uh, a farmer, also ran a ferry service, uh, I believe, between Staten Island and Manhattan, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which would corroborate the whole them being on Staten Island thing. But Yeah, I got all of that. Oh, okay, gotcha. Well, yeah, that's... Uh, I mean that's about all I got for the family history part, but um, when was this born? Why don't you born? dig into dig into some more of the later stuff for him?
0: Yeah, so like Greg said, um, parents were on Staten Island, so that's where young Corney was born, seventeen ninety five, Staten Island, New York. And just to give the bookends on this, he died in eighteen seventy seven. Yep. Um, so yeah, that was like that was like early Standard Oil, correct? Like they were probably the biggest oil company by seventy seven,
3: right? Yeah, I think it was like. I think it only took them two years after they started getting into the oil business, which I know was immediately after the Civil War. Oh yeah, it it then, yeah,
0: yeah. So so Vanderbilt got to see Rockefeller and probably Carnegie. I can't remember his years, but probably I think he's around the same time. Anyways, eighteen seventy seven. Yeah. And, like Greg mentioned, his his father owned a ferry, and um, yeah, those went typically from Staten Island to Manhattan, and still do to this day. Mm-hmm. Staten Island ferry still exists. it's not wasn't like born from the Vanderbilt family, but Cornelius Vanderbilt definitely allowed that industry to you know Flirt. continue its foothold, Flirt. even though like other technologies improved. Um, so at 11 years old, Cornelius Vanderbilt quit school and started working with Pa. At 16 years old, he actually started his own ferry service. His parents gave him a loan of a hundred dollars, which was about $2,100 today, which is still somehow enough to buy a boat. Um, it was a little boat, but it was a boat nonetheless. So he started, um, relentlessly ferrying people and cargo back and forth between Staten Island and Manhattan. And his sort of attitude and gusto earned him uh, the semi-mockingly nickname, the Commodore, from other ferry captains, because they they were probably just like, hey, look, look at this young scamp, you know, he's working so hard, poor guy. Uh, and they called him the Commodore. Um, but it stuck, and it definitely it definitely became better suited in his later sort of steamboat years.
1: Worth mentioning, if that word is totally new to you, that was at the time the highest rank in the Navy.
3: Oh. oh, I did not know that. That's uh <laughs> So Quite. they were definitely making fun of him. Quite the title there. <laughs> <laughs> this
0: little 16-year-old dude. <laughs> that's uh, Yeah, that's some good background information. Thank you, Kane. <laughs> um but he was pretty quick to turn a pro uh, I shouldn't say a profit but he was pretty quick to start bringing in money he did a good job advertising and marketing and in his first year he earned $1000 with the ferry business um but he right i mean right off the bat his sort of grand charge into business was limited because at the end of the day he owed his parents money they technically you know had like interest in the company that he had just started. And so they got part of the profits too. So it was kind of sluggish to begin with. Um, but his first big break was with this guy named Thomas Gibbons. Gibbons was already pretty well established in this ferry business. Uh, around, <laughs> Sorry, that just sounded really goofy. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like Mr. Crocker yeah oh yeah (laughs) fairy godparents so gibbons was already well established in the fairy business and he hired vanderbilt not only to captain one of his steamboats that went from new york to new jersey and back but also to take on like a more managerial position within his his business um the timing of this is pretty incredible though as far as history goes Gibbons, Thomas Gibbons was in the middle of this intense years-long dispute with his competitors, the Ogden family. Um, Greg, don't know if you read up any of this, and if so, it's spoiled, but do the names
3: Gibbons and Ogden ring a bell to you? They do, Um, so I I know exactly what you're about to get into. I don't know the details of it, so I'm interested to hear more. It's something we briefly learned about in high school, because it was a... Gibbons v. Ogden is what you're gonna bring up. A landmark, yeah. a landmark Supreme Court decision from what was it, 1820 something? Or yeah, yeah. Right yep. up there? 1824? Um,
0: later than that. Okay. I think. Uh but yeah, we're this is our official venture into uh becoming a resource for schools. So <laughs> Gibbons v
3: <laughs>
1: what? <laughs> what? I was telling I was trying to tell Greg to stop looking it up. Oh why? Because Dan's oh. Dan's wrong, but it, it wasn't later than that. But
3: it was 1824. Oh. I was right, but wow. anyway. All right.
0: <laughs> so he's he's hired on with Gibbons just in time for this uh, famous historical dispute between Gibbons and the Ogden family. Basically, New York had sanctioned a monopoly on water um, shipping, I guess of, like, cargo and people in uh, specifically, like, this New York Harbor area. And the monopoly was given to... or was allowed for the Ogden family. And so all competitors basically had to stay out of, like, certain waterways, certain ports. They couldn't ship certain things, et cetera, et cetera. It was very limited. And Gibbons was one of the guys who really was fighting it in the courts and essentially what happened is it climbed up the level of, you know, the levels of federal courts to the U S Supreme court. And the Supreme court said, no, States have no jurisdiction over interstate commerce because the, you know, the New York Harbor is really between New York and New Jersey. Like it's pretty much both States territory, so to speak. And so the Supreme Court said, well, really, it's nobody's territory. The federal government can regulate commerce between the states, not states.
1: Ah, that pesky commerce clause.
0: Oh, dude. And that's, I mean, that's where it took off. Like, it wasn't used a whole lot in the middle of the 19th century, but later on, it, pretty much any law, man, oh, yeah. you can justify with interstate for a lot of good ways, like in a lot of good ways, right? Like civil rights movement was a lot in a lot of ways, uh, sort of standing on that pillar anyways. So he was part of this. So he got a little bit of a legal education. Cornelius Vanderbilt did. Um, so he, you know, he's getting access to this like larger steamboat business, uh, the ferry business. Meanwhile, his wife who, I'll also mention several times is his first cousin is running some inn somewhere in New Jersey, so they're starting to actually like rake it in. But it, it does still seem kind of scrappy, you know. It's like he's not totally making it yet because like his wife still has to run the inn or whatever her job is, you know. So he's not he's not like this skyrocket rise like we looked at with Vander, uh, Rockefeller. So that's like the early sort of business adventures. Um, he, he gets into, you know, the steamboat, steamship territory a whole lot more, but I'm leaving that. Uh, who's taking that one for Kane? But before I sign off, I got to give you some personal information about this guy. So he's of the Moravian faith. Which is a type of Protestantism. And I really didn't need to mention it at all because it had pretty much zero influence on how he acted as a human being. <laughs> because I looked up sort of like the key principles, key values, and they do not align with this man's actions. So he married his first cousin when he was nineteen years old and ended up having twelve children with this person. Might have been thirteen. I was gonna but say I, I thought it was I thirteen it wrong. Might have typed it wrong. Um, And like, I know what you're thinking. That's gross. And yeah, even his parents were like not pumped about him marrying his first cousin. So right off the bat, good job, Corny. He ended up being a pretty terrible father in a lot of ways. He really wanted a lot of boys. That was one thing, I guess, just one of those old style, like pass on the... Pass on the name, so You know, I don't know. And how many do you end up having? Three. <laughs> yeah. Ten, only ten, had three. Ten daughters he did not yeah. care about. <laughs> no, dude. He completely <laughs> ignored the daughters. And and even with his sons, like, he really only cared about one of them. I'll okay. get to that in a second. And even, so, then, even then,
3: didn't really care about, well, never mind.
0: Never. Yeah. Continue. Just the one. Just the one managed to get some money. And I think that's probably all
3: he ever got from his father. Well, but. So there's one that he really, really liked. And then I don't know if I'm going too far into this now. I don't know who, who ends up getting into this later, if it comes up at all. But said son passes away. And then another son that he wasn't so fond of, eventually kind of warms up to a little bit.
0: But mm. I'll be interested to see which son that is, because I do talk about one son that dies. Okay, the one that dies was his like favorite. The only one he really cared Ooh, about. Did not seem like it. Uh, I'll get into that.
1: (laughs)
2: Okay. All right. Maybe I
1: can, maybe we can clear this up right now with the info I have. William is the one who gets all the money. George Washington Vanderbilt died in the civil war. Cornelius killed himself.
0: Ah, okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to talk about Cornelius. Sorry to the other two. Okay. He didn't Um, didn't care too much for Cornelius. So before we get into that, he cheated on his wife slash cousin a lot with horse and, Yeah, and even, like, like he sent her on vacations so he could have some privacy with his mistresses, and even went so far as having her committed to an insane asylum on a number of occasions to, again, achieve more freedom and privacy for him and his mistresses. And eventually... His entanglements. Finally, his entanglements, yeah. He eventually divorced his wife slash cousin and married someone else who was also his cousin named Frank.
3: You're and you're <laughs> skipping a step in there too. Um,
0: she was what?
3: Oh, uh, he didn't marry anybody, but, um, so some background information behind why he ended up marrying his cousin, Frank. Um,
1: who, who so is a woman to be, we should say, yes, <laughs> it's yes. A woman he, named Frank.
3: I mean, it would be very progressive if he married his his male cousin, Frank, back in the 1800s. But no, that was not what happened. He Um, was
0: described as having a very persistent male companion
3: throughout his life, though. He was the straightest man in the the world. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, hey, good for him, I guess. But anywho. uh, No, so basically after his wife passed, he started seeing mediums, as in like psychic mediums. Like, um, not small, not large, medium.
1: Yes. Real Goldilocks scenario.
3: <laughs> Magical Goldilocks. Um, but no, so he started seeing these two, I think it was two sisters. Um, and the younger one of them, I believe, uh, was the one that he kind of took a liking to, and even supposedly offered to marry. And his, uh, his family kind of caught wind of this, like, uh, the you know, children and whatnot. And were kind of like, oh no, if he marries this medium... Maybe he'll give all of his money away to a stranger. We won't get any of this fortune. So they kind of, you know, played matchmaker and found him a nice cousin to marry because they knew he was into that. <laughs> she was a more distant cousin. <laughs> but uh, definitely a they cousin. Frank. Yes, who was also 40 years his junior. Yeah, so thanks, um, Cornelius. So, so I, the, the explanation behind the Frank thing, the only kind of... So it's according to, like, one historian. There's not a lot of established fact on this, but supposedly uh, the name Frank came from uh, a promise, an ill-fated promise from her parents to a family friend that they would name their first child Frank regardless of the gender. And <laughs> she ended up kind of drawing a short stick on that one. But, hey, ended up million and multi-billionaire, so. Not bad. That's hilarious. Yeah, not bad for her. But, hey, he was, again, 40 years older than she was, so. I don't know well, I don't know how grand that was, but
0: yeah, and if how he treated his first wife
3: was any indication yeah probably didn't care about her too much, but yeah anyway that's his. uh that's the whole thing with the medium also i I mentioned this uh before we started recording, but uh so those uh those mediums he went and saw they after after being involved with Cornelius, they kinda stopped their whole medium thing and went and got into activism and uh particularly suffer- uh they were suffragettes, and um, one of those two sisters uh, actually became the first female that had ever run for the U.S. presidency. Obviously, did not win. Uh, you yeah. know. Nor do we know her name. Um, she changed her name. That was the weird thing. Um, to I, Frank. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> that would be fun. That'd be really funny. The ultimate, the ultimate con. But
0: if you won't have
2: me.
3: Uh, no, but the, uh, the medium that he went, the mediums he got really close with, uh, one of the sisters changed their name. Um, but, uh, oh, the, the Frank he married was Frank Armstrong. I do remember that last name now, but, uh, anyway.
1: Okay. And you got some Yes. So I've got a little bit about his business experience prior to what he is known for. And I'm going to start even though it's not what I'm talking about, I'm going to start with the greatest lie Cornelius Vanderbilt ever told. Excellent. I'm, And this is seven years after where I'm going to start, and I'll go back to that. Okay. But in a very similar kind of situation, as with John D. Rockefeller, on November the 8th, 1833, Vanderbilt oh. was in uh, a train crash. Oh, man. And I believe it was actually the first train crash in the United States with any fatalities. I believe that's correct. But he broke his leg and he vowed to never travel by rail again. <clears throat> Wait a
3: second.
0: Yeah. To-
1: you're phone. totally
2: you're
3: totally right about the biggest lie I ever told. Also, um, he, he did more than just break his leg. <laughs> he also broke three ribs and punctured a lung. Yeah. Nice. It was a pretty serious wreck. Also, did you, uh, catch anything on who else was on that, uh, on that train train wreck?
1: Yes. Former president John Quincy Adams.
3: Yeah. Not only former president, but like former president from like four years prior to oh, when really? this accident happened. Yeah. He was like just barely out of the office. Dang. So pretty, pretty crazy. Also some Irish actor that was pretty famous apparently, but, uh, yeah. Not next to those two. Oh, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, probably more famous than him at the time, but, uh, possible.
1: Yeah, but well, um, not the president. Anyway. You, you know what I mean. But, yeah. uh,
3: <laughs> there was one person who did not get injured on that in that accident, which I I thought was interesting. But yeah, he uh, he slid like thirty feet down an embankment, which is pretty crazy. I mean, they were only going twenty five miles an hour, but I guess train train derailments at <laughs> yeah. train derailments at any speed are in, not a fun not a fun circumstance. Yeah, that Let's was talk- in what was it called Hatties, uh, Hattiesville or something like that.
1: Yeah, uh, had had it.
3: Heights new Jersey. oh i do have
1: it written i should have just looked later in the sentence
3: and november 8th 1933 it was a hot box failure which means that the uh basically the conductor the, was
1: the, smoking <laughs> loud in the fucking <laughs> locomotive
3: and, <laughs> yeah they accidentally shoveled in cannabis instead of coal oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, God. no uh what that actually means is basically the um I thought this was bizarre. So, like, the the way they would grease the wheels on old trains like that, they didn't just, like, pack them full of grease like you would expect. They would soak rags in grease and then stuff the rags inside of a little box that would move open to, like, so you could get access to the axle. And uh, what would happen is if that that grease, like, got too hot or ran out, you know, it would catch on fire. And then what ended up happening in this instance was it caught on fire, melted the axle, the axle failed, train derailed. Sure. Yeah.
1: But it's like totally see that happening.
3: Even though during this, like it was not even a very long train trip. I mean, I guess this is the you know this is the case with early trains. But like, I think it was like a less than fifty mile trip, and they stopped to oil the wheels in the middle <laughs> of the like in the middle of the trip, and it still caught on fire. <laughs> and failed.
0: So so boats. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah,
3: we'll get back to the boats.
1: Enough goofing around. We've had our fun. After the previously mentioned Gibbons died in 1826 Cornelius Vanderbilt continued to work for his son for three years and then in 1829 he pretty much took over because I've already forgotten if you've mentioned Dan but at this point he was pretty much the business manager of the entire Gibbons mm-hmm. like operation
3: he was he was pretty stoked on uh, becoming the manager of that too because he didn't, he didn't think very highly of Gibbons's son Thought he was a weak man, oh, and sure. very little, very little respect for him.
1: Uh, and he just pretty much continued to gobble up ferry lines in the area one by one, until he met a little bit of opposition in 1831 from my father' brother, Daniel Drew. Drew. <laughs> 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 oh my uh, god! Uh, Drew refused to capitulate until Vanderbilt would buy him out, and that business move actually impressed Vanderbilt quite a bit and the two entered a secret business partnership that lasted decades. They were working together to kind of avoid having to compete in the first place. So I don't don't really, there were a lot of moving parts in this steamboat business in the New York Harbor. There's a lot of names. And there was another one of these government-sponsored monopolies, the Hudson River Steamboat Association. And they ended up paying Vanderbilt quite a bit of money to stop ferry services where they were ferrying so he moved all operations to the long island sound now dan you probably have a little better understanding of the geography of this i've already talked at great length about how much how much longer long island was than i thought it was but is the long island sound the area between where long island would jut out and then is that the area between mainland new york and connecticut and then long island
3: uh yeah
0: north of long island yeah. yeah okay
3: the whole term sound generally means like, I mean, if you're thinking about the way that the ocean comes in, it's going to hit long Island before it hits like Connecticut or the other areas of New York that are kind of like along the coast there. Uh-huh. Um, so the, the sound has to do okay. with like how smooth, smooth the water is. Okay. Cause like you could easily like, I guarantee you if his shipping lines or, or ferries or whatever they were that were going between long Island and ma- the mainland, um, those ships would just, capsize if they went out in like actual the actual ocean so they operated on the smoother water that was in between there because they could get away with
1: it you know being the size of ships they were and so he's got he's got the long island sound kind of locked down and then in 1838 he also takes over the operations of the staten island ferry and it is at this point that the nickname commodore stops being sarcastic and actually becomes a term of i guess reverence like People were actually recognizing that this guy was running the boats, basically, and all this business in the 1840s. I'm going to let Greg get into this a little more, but just generally, the textile industry started really growing in popping that area, off. popping off. I, I actually almost said popping off, but didn't want to, because I thought I'd look like an idiot. <laughs> the...
3: Well, I took that from you, so I'll, I'll be the idiot here. But yeah, no, definitely, uh, definitely, quite the industry there. Like that was, I mean, some of the first like kind of the first i wouldn't say the first parts of the industrial revolution in the united states but that was like one of the most rapidly growing and biggest parts of the industrial revolution in the united states did you agree
1: yeah and i'll say this the very first railroads laid in the united states were for the connection between the long island sound and boston because of this for the textile industry specifically yes yeah oh cool and eventually vanderbilt came to own some of those railroads that did that business And he ended up like, you know, undercutting prices on his lines to damage what was the most popular line at the time, the Stonington, which connected New York to Providence and Boston. And he managed to take over presidency of that line, which made it the first railroad company he owned. But that's where I'll stop on that. Instead, I will talk about him continuing his steamboat business after the California gold rush started happening. So as we all likely know, in 1849, that was when that really Kicked off, and Vanderbilt used the opportunity to switch from ferries to ocean-going steam vessels.
3: So, to uh, to provide some context here, um, what was something that exists today that was missing in 1849? Came the as Panama far as, Canal. Well, other than that, <laughs> uh, a transcontinental... transcontinental railroad. Yeah, exactly. So, like, what was the fastest way to get to California from New York in 1849?
0: Boats, boats, boats. Yeah,
3: exactly. You had to go all the way around South America. You yeah. had to go all the way around there, um, which is actually still faster uh, than going overland through the Western United States at that point. I mean, for any of our listeners who've stayed uh, current on our topics, uh, we did talk about uh, crossing uh, the United States in our Donner Party episode. And oh, yeah. if you if you paid close attention during that, you would totally understand how grueling that journey was. Um, So going by ship was definitely the preferred method. But uh, what was the idea to make that a little bit bit shorter, Kane?
1: (laughs) The Panama Canal did not exist, but Vanderbilt suggested, what if we use Nicaragua? Because Nicaragua is closer than Panama, because there was some travel where even before the canal, they would go down to Panama, where Panama is extraordinarily skinny and just, go on, you know, carriage to the other side and then pick back up. But Vanderbilt thought, why don't we use Nicaragua? A, it's closer to the United States. And B, at its narrowest part, Lake Nicaragua basically covers most of the area of the land. So, you know, canal's halfway built, basically.
3: And what's also cool about that is that even though Lake Nicaragua is like three quarters of the way, like west, across the, what would that be? And that's not an is, isthmus because isthmus does is actually have a water crossing, right?
1: No, it's just a thin strip of land. With okay, w- so it is an Ismus.
3: Okay, yeah. alright, well, uh, Lake Nicaragua is way closer to the Pacific Ocean than it is the Atlantic, but it drains into the Atlantic. So, um, the, the river that goes like, that comes out of Lake Nicaragua goes into the Gulf. So, um, what Vanderbilt thought was a good idea was basically get people down there onto the coast and then use river boats to get them up to up to the lake. And then from the edge of the lake, get them over to the, to the Pacific. Oh, okay. Which was also faster than, uh, than the stagecoach route that they had at that point used across, uh, Panama. Mm-hmm. So, but what was he, what was he after Kane? Was he after transporting people or what was he actually trying to do there?
1: Uh, get the gold, to The east coast,
3: um, so from what I'd heard, that was like the return trip, that's what he wanted. But, um,
1: was he getting people to California?
3: Not people, also? what he wanted to do was he wanted to get a, one of those one of the, lots of money, and his preferred way of doing that was big fat government contracts. So, what he wanted to do was take all the mail to all the miners and mining companies in California, um. Mm across the isthmus and get it there because people cared about getting their mail quickly um so they you know the u.s government was like trying to find somebody to get mail to california that didn't involve an overland route and the quickest way to do so would be you know get it over the isthmus so he was trying to get a government contract to to take the mail over there but ended up not actually getting that contract at least at first um and then he did what Vandrail did best Cut his prices enough to the point where he was able to secure the country. Uh, 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 good. What what is happening? What is happening here? What, yeah, we're skipping a, a lot of what I have. This is a coup. <laughs> I didn't know you were gonna. Phippard take over. That's something you got to talk about.
1: So Vanderbilt, he's got this system doing, uh, as Greg said, the mail, I suppose. Yeah. And bringing back gold, and he was doing that. Overland, just for, you know, the portion of... There's not a canal still is what I'm getting at. Yep. And this was under the auspices of something he set up called the Accessory Transit Company. And he's got that going for a few years until 1853, when he's yachting around on his steam yacht with his family in Europe, when two business partners of his, Joseph L. White and Charles Morgan, end up betraying him. (gasps) causing Vanderbilt not only to have to buy steamships from White at an incredibly marked up price, Charles Morgan actually denied Vanderbilt money he was owed from the ATC because Morgan was kind of running the finances of the whole thing. So as Greg was getting into, in response to this, Vanderbilt absolutely just, he's like, all right, well, time to start another one. And operates at a huge loss to undercut the prices of Morgan and White, who eventually had to pay him off. Now, Greg, do you have more to say about the actual intricacies of that?
3: Yeah, so, um, I guess how much do you want me to talk about? Because there's actually a bit that I think got a little bit mixed up in there. Because uh, there's a there's a another company that was origin that originally got the mail contract, uh, that would take the mail across Panama, um, and that's who originally got the mail contract, and then the company that uh, Vanderbilt had set up. What was it called again?
1: Trans. Accessory transit company. Accessory transit company.
3: That was Vanderbilt's company. Yes. And so he did his thing where he, you know, cut prices to try and get the mail contract, secured the mail contract, and then realized he was like 60 something years old and had never taken a vacation. And that's when he went and did the Grand Tour of okay. Europe, uh, which is crazy because he spent like in the, like in, in, you know, eighteen sixties dollars. He spent like two million dollars on that trip with his family. Good lord! Including buying an insane like hundred and something foot yacht. to do. I yeah,
1: I didn't even know yachts existed back then.
3: He, I don't know. Apparently, I want to just know what that looked like. It was like a steam. It was a steamer. It was big enough to try uh, to cross the Atlantic Ocean. So, still, also, but I mean, like, also something it's hard was, to picture. Oh, that's what I was just about to say. You know, what's really hard to picture for me is the fact that the first steamers that went between you know, the United States and Europe were paddle wheel steamers. And I have a really hard time imagining one of those in the actual open ocean.
2: Because yeah. to,
3: to me, it's like, I can, I can never, it, to me, there's just like a line, in, a line drawn where it's like we went from sails to propellers, but that's not how that works. <laughs> yeah. It's like there were, there were side wheel steamers that crossed the ocean. And I'm just like, that seems wrong. But I, I'm sure that that was a part of history, because obviously...
1: They had, probably you know, moved past it pretty quickly.
3: I imagine, because it was just like, you have... I mean, you know that propellers work. Like, the Archimedes screw was basically a propeller inside of a tube.
1: <laughs> like... Yep.
3: And so it's like it wasn't the technology that wasn't... Anyway, it's just hard to picture in my head. But anyway, so when he's on this vacation, uh, what was... Uh, we skipped over the whole political
1: situation that those two gentlemen found themselves in expand the coup oh see that's two years later and that's the next thing i was going to get into
3: uh that was a part of maybe i read wrong because what i what i understood was what you're about to get into is what the two gentlemen that he left in charge conspired with the person yeah right yeah and okay, so, right.
1: and it's in 1855 is when Vanderbilt tries to get back, to get the company back. From... Oh, and that and that's when that's going on? Yes. Okay. All right. Well. So maybe, Greg, I don't have anything about the period of time between that and when he steps back in. So if you want to.
3: I actually don't really. I mean, I didn't write anything down about this. I just watched a couple
1: of videos on okay. it. So go ahead. Do your thing. Ultimately, I don't. Yeah. Okay. So. After stepping back from the mess a little bit and setting up a foothold in the transatlantic travel business, buying an ironworks in New York that m- made boats, I guess, <laughs> Vanderbilt once again tried to assume control of the accessory transit company. But uh, just as he was doing this, a mercenary from America named William Walker, who'd made a lot of expeditions to Mexico and Central America, uh, briefly took control of the Nicaraguan government. Now, Greg, do you know at all how he did that?
3: Uh, so he was what was known then is it's weird because this term means something completely different now. He was known as a filibuster. Which at yeah, the time sorry. yeah, which at the time did not have anything to do with speaking for a long time to shut people up in Congress. Uh or not let other people speak, excuse me. Um at the time, filibusters were people that would basically rile up a bunch of people to you know, men who are willing to be mercenaries, basically. And they're like, hey, if we all go with guns to this place, we could take over the government. They wouldn't be able to do anything about it. And then let's set up a white people, English-speaking colony where they are, and then just take it over, claim it as our own. Uh, So he tried this already once in Baja, California, I believe uh I believe it was a place called La Paz, but it has nothing to do with Bolivia. Just yeah, La Paz is the modern capital of Bolivia, I believe. Anyway, um took over part of Baja California. Um and actually had some decent success until they started to run low on supplies and he had to start and people started deserting and he ended up having to surrender at the US border to US military forces he's like, sorry, my bad. And they arrest him, of course, for having an illegal war. Um, goes to trial and actually talks his way out of it and got, gets acquitted in trial uh, after giving it, like some really impassioned speech, which is ridiculous. So all, <laughs> all the, the filibuster. Yeah. And so <laughs> oh my God. maybe that's for that. Can, I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> we got to look into that after this. What he got out of that trial was, man, I didn't have any repercussions for this. You know what I need? More financial backing and then to try this again. More so, coup. Cool. Yeah. So that's exactly what he does in Nicaragua. He's like, basically, my understanding is he kind of conspired with the two gentlemen that uh, Vanderbilt left in charge. Yes. And he's basically like, hey, I'm going to take over in Nicaragua. And here's what's going to happen. When I take over, I am going to basically rip up the contract that we have with Vanderbilt that says that, you got, that he's the only one who can, you know, well, yeah, he, people and
1: goods. If I can step in, Go for they it. got Walker, with those two, mm-hmm. got this guy, Cornelius Garrison, who was the San Francisco agent from the ATC, who had control over the transit rights and the, like deeds or titles or whatever for the steamships. And they got him to hand over the transit rights and steamships to Walker. And, uh, so Vanderbilt wants to get him back as I'm sure you could guess.
3: Did you get the quote from
1: him about this? No. Ooh, this
3: is a good, uh, I'm going to paraphrase cause I don't have the quote in front of me, but Cornelius Vanderbilt, apparently he was known for being a, a man of few words, few, very intense words. And, uh, when he found out that he was being cheated by these men, um, I believe the quote goes something like this. Gentlemen, you have undertaken it to cheat me. I will not sue you as the courts are too slow. I will destroy you. Yours truly, Cornelius Vanderbilt. That'd be a scary letter to get. It'd be terrifying. <laughs> Even though the man's in Europe, it's just like, oh no, what is yeah. going to happen to us? Not for long. <laughs> He's yeah. coming back.
0: It's just striking to me how flimsy this all is, and I just need to remember like the context, like the of the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, if one person signs over the rights to these two things, like the business is ours. Organizations to
1: maintain any of this. Yeah, no board,
3: no regulations, like. The only things, like, there was a Nicaraguan government, but, I mean, I can, imma- I can imagine <laughs> in the 18—yeah, like in the 1850s, they were pretty much powerless. I know. Uh, I mean, so I'm sure they put up some kind of token resistance, but um, later down the line, some other governments have a little bit more resistance. I don't know if Kane will talk about that, but I'll leave that be for now.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. what I, What I would say is that Vanderbilt ended up negotiating with Costa Rica, who had already at this point declared war on Walker mm-hmm and so they weren't vanderbilt very happy about this what's that
3: oh i was saying they weren't very happy about this no, no. like i mean this is something that was happening like this whole filibuster thing it was a pretty much exclusively a central and south america well mostly central american thing yeah. at this point it was like mexico and central america uh and they weren't really having any of it the mexican government was pissed when they when walker tried this in baja california uh and uh everybody's reaction was pretty similar when this happened in Nicaragua. So anyway, history.
1: Yes. So with Vanderbilt's financial backing and, you know, he kind of worked out a deal with them, helped them out with the money for stopping Walker and ended up getting control of his ships back, which also stopped Walker from getting any reinforcements because there was some militiamen that were going to come down and help. Now with that cut, uh, Vanderbilt's got to shift back, but the Nicaraguan government, they're a little sick of this whole situation, so they do not allow Vanderbilt to resume his operations in the country. Duh. <laughs> so instead, Vanderbilt has to set up shop in Panama and earned a monopoly on the California steamship trade as well, just having all, all control of all the ships going through Panama.
0: So that was just a side
3: effect of him losing.
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay. The foothold did, in
3: Nicaragua. Did you get any anything God. on what Walker did after this? No. Uh well he tried this in Honduras. Uh failed.
0: And, Fatally uh,
1: failed?
3: Firing squad, yeah. <laughs> the Honduran government captured him and when they were like, yeah, no, none of this, and then shot him a whole bunch. Dude's rock. <laughs>
1: So, that just I mean,
3: you can't say that I didn't deserve it. No, not not at all. You know, third coup is certainly not the charm. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Uh,
1: The last thing I'll say before I hand it off to Greg for the rail topic that everybody's been patiently waiting for. I can't wait to rail you. I just have, oh, I just have (laughs) a little bit about the Civil War. I don't have much because we we all want to talk about trains. So in 1861, (laughs) Vanderbilt attempted to donate the USS Vanderbilt, which was his largest steamship, to the Union Navy. But Gideon Wells, the secretary of the Navy, thought that its upkeep would be too costly for what he estimated would be a short engagement with the Southern rebels. And it wasn't until the Battle of Hampton Roads, which you may have heard of before because it was the first battle between ironclad ships, that Abraham Lincoln personally asked Vanderbilt to donate the ship again which he did after fixing a battering ram to it which, i love uh, that story uh, yeah absolutely and the that donation actually earned him a congressional gold medal
0: yep so before donating it this private citizen was like oh no no let me hook you up i'll put a battering
3: ram yeah. on the end of it the- <laughs> well what they were trying to do was fight an ironclad with a regular ship and they're like how can we do that the answer was, well, ironclads are slow. This ship is fast. Let's put a battery ram on it and just ram the crap out of this ironclad so we can sink it. It worked, right? Yes. Because so I, I think after that, he went and uh, the ship was like, retrofitted and then went and uh, hunted down um, like the... Yeah, there was like some,
1: a southern so, pirate group. Basically, uh, yeah, they were raiding.
3: They were raiding like merchant ships, like the Confederates were, and they were like, "We need to stop this." So they and it ended up uh, sending uh, the Vanderbilt down there.
1: So and uh, yeah, Greg, that's all I've got. So if you would be so kind as to tell us about the meat of Vanderbilt's life, I'd be happy to.
3: So uh, as we mentioned before, we're gonna we're gonna rewind a little bit here back to some of. Vanderbilt's earlier rail ventures, um, which were prior to the Civil War, so and prior to that whole Central American uh engagement there. Um so Vanderbilt first dipped his toes in the waters of rail transport when he became involved with the New York, Providence, and Boston Railroad, as we talked about before. So that's basically that whole when we were discussing the uh the Industrial Revolution and um some of the earliest railroads in the United States. Um, And as Kane had also mentioned, the New York Providence and Boston Railroad is better known as the Stonington Railroad. Um, So Vanderbilt personally rode on this line a couple of times, and he was convinced that it had great promise uh, because he pretty much, he's like, he's thinking, you know, this is the fastest way to travel between Boston and New York City, way faster than a ship, this is a great idea. I want to invest in this. So, wasn't this after his train crash? This was about, um, uh, that was the train crash was in 1833. Yeah. So, this was, uh, 12 years later in 1845. Well, life uh, is short, ride rail, I suppose. Sounds like it. Well, also, I mean, imagine, as we were mentioning, like those were some of the earliest railroads, you know. Um, and I'm sure that as rail technology progressed, he gained a little bit more confidence in it. Because, like, the only reason that whole thing failed is because of an axle bearing. And, you know, just an improvement in that could, you know, potentially convince him. So, I, th- I think the thing that really convinced him was, you know, dollars.
0: Because if I mean, he, didn't he used... ride in his ride on his own rail
3: lines, that might look a little bad. Yeah. So, in 1845, he purchased a large amount of shares on the Stonington Railway. Uh, the following year, doing the same with the Hartford and New Haven Railroad. Uh, And by 1847, Vanderbilt had become the president of the Stonington Railroad uh, and successfully ran the railroad for the following two years. But in 1849, um, Vanderbilt had gained much more interest in his idea of a canal project in Nicaragua, again, 1949 being the year that the California Gold Rush really kicked off, uh, which led to his resignation from Stonington in May of 1849. So, anyway, then comes the whole Central American thing. Um, and then after that, um, Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt kind of steps back into the rail ring once he, once he kind of hangs his uh hangs his water coat on the hook, if you will. So <laughs> that's like the third one of these he's done. <laughs> <laughs> so Vanderbilt's first serious foray into the railroad business of you know beyond Stonington was the New York and Harlem Railway, which uh, ran along the Erie Canal. Um, the This railroad was also New York City's first major railroad network and was founded in 1831. Um, so its southern terminus was in Manhattan, and its northern terminus was in Chatham, New York, which is about 130 miles north of Manhattan, uh, along the Hudson, about five miles inland from the Hudson River um and about 15 miles southeast of Albany. Can so, I interrupt? Sure.
0: Quick plug. That stretch of rail is still in existence today. Um, there's some kind of tourist railroad there. No, no. The there's like Amtrak runs from New York City to Albany and beyond and the Metro-North Railroad goes from Grand Central Terminal up to like somewhere in Westchester, but Honest to God, most beautiful stretch of rail I've ever been on. Like, and especially if you're at, like, sunrise or sunset,
1: it's it's incredible. What's crazy, too, is that they've never replaced the rails. <laughs> yeah, they're still made out of iron. <laughs> or are they not now? <laughs> are they steel, I guess? I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just rusting away in the rain. <laughs> I mean, steel rusts, too, though. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> i
3: honestly think a good number of the rails are still iron but anyway um anywho uh so um it's the uh the new york and ha- harlem railway um was uh pretty poorly managed it was unprofitable and uh <laughs> only ran steam locomotives from like downtown Manhattan to like 42nd Street. Like that's it. That's all they ran actual powered trains on. The rest of it was horse drawn, which to me like I mean that's a pretty it's a pretty poor railway at that point, you know. So, um the New York and Harlem Railway was uh poorly managed and uh quite unprofitable, uh as it really only it only ran steam locomotives between downtown Manhattan and about Forty Second Street, which today is like basically not even the what would that be like southwestern edge of uh, like central Central Park. It's like
0: it's like downtown to Midtown.
3: Yeah, it's it's not far at all. That's all that they did um, with uh, steam locomotives. So uh, from there all the way to Chatham uh, at the northern end of the line, it was all horse drawn uh, rail which is uh, you know, pretty ridiculous. It wasn't, you know, wasn't much faster than other forms of transport. So. Uh, but Vanderbilt saw potential in the line for one specific reason. It was the only railroad link to downtown Manhattan. The only one. Uh, so Vanderbilt decided that um, he would get involved with this railway, and in 1863, uh, Vanderbilt uh, ascended to the director of the New York and Harlem Railroad. Um, at age 70, no less. And, uh, the following day was actually elected president of the railroad. Um, so moving on from that, uh, that was 1863. In 1864, Vanderbilt also took control of the nearby Hudson river railroad, uh, which ran a parallel railroad route from, uh, Albany to New York city. Um, under Vanderbilt's leadership, uh, both the railroads became much more profitable. Uh, which is unsurprising. What is surprising, however, is that his business ta- business tactics changed during his involvement with the railroads. Um, he gave a much more diplomatic approach compared to his earlier, much more cutthroat, hostile-type uh, um, approaches towards business. Um, a lot of people attribute this to his age, thinking that he kind of became more sensible. But uh, another big factor in Honestly, probably the better explanation here is that the railroad business is inherently different from water shipping routes in that the railroad business is built around a shared infrastructure, uh, which pretty much forces companies to work together to some degree since they're shaling, sharing rails. Um, since there's only, you know, certain routes around places, it's not like you could just go, you know, point A to point B through water like you could with um, his water shipping businesses. So. Just an interesting thing to note that he wasn't nearly as cutthroat in his railroad businesses as you may expect from his earlier business ventures. Because he couldn't be? Like, that's your point? Yeah. I mean, my point is that I think it was more largely because of just the nature of rail transport. Uh, But it seems like a lot of historians kind of point it more towards his own personal approach to it. But I don't know. I'm much more convinced by the idea that it was more about the business type, you know it was just naturally required for railroads to work together at least a little bit. So anyway, moving on. um, The next big topic here is going to be the New York central railroad. Um, So as we know, the early days of corporate America in the 19th century were notoriously cutthroat. Um, And again, as we know, Vanderbilt had been no exception to that. I will say that while railroads at least were required to work together to some degree. Um there was still cutthroat competition as much as there could be with the amount of cooperation required. Um and at the time of what we're talking about, you know, the eighteen eighteen sixties here, at this point the railroad business was the largest uh business sector in the entire uh American economy. Um so these are big dollars we're talking about, and there was certainly lots of competition. Um, adding to that, there was also very little legislative oversight into railroad businesses, which uh, led to men such as Vanderbilt uh, to build, or at least seek to build, massive rail empires. So, um, Vanderbilt's biggest and um, honestly most important rail acquisition would end up being the New York Central Railroad which he secured pretty much just in order to keep his investment in the Hudson River Railroad safe, um, as somebody else taking over the New York Central Railroad um, and undercutting his prices could make his uh, Hudson River Railroad uh, line obsolete, since they basically ran the same exact route. So it was very important to him to secure the New York Central so that his Hudson River Railroad wouldn't be put out of business. Um, So... To get control of the New York Central Railroad, uh, Vanderbilt actually had to fight a man, not physically, but uh, financially fight (laughs) a man named Leonard Jerome for uh, the control of the New York Central in 1864, uh, with Vanderbilt achieving success in
1: 1867. I say fisticuffs. Put them up, see?
3: Um, So I'm going to mention some of his other less important acquisitions Um, These are not necessarily um, chronological, since uh, the first one I'm going to mention is actually or the second one actually actually was something he purchased about a year before he passed away. But uh, two of the other acquisitions that were big, but not nearly as central to his success would be the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Railway, which connected the New York Central lines to Chicago, as well as the Canada Southern Railway, which Vanderbilt actually, he didn't even purchase it. He obtained it for basically no money other than taking on the responsibility of some bonds that were issued to that railroad by their bank that their bank had defaulted on. Uh, So that that railroad was pretty much completely insolvent at that point. So Vanderbilt comes in, he's like, yeah, I'll back those bonds. And by doing that, he took control of this railway. Um, And that railway gave New York Central a link between Buffalo and many places in southern Ontario. Um, And eventually, much, 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 much later in New York Central's uh, history, and ended up actually connecting all the way to Detroit uh, via a tunnel underneath uh, the Detroit Detroit River. But uh, that's way, way, way past when Vanderbilt was alive, so.
0: Oh okay. I was yep. like, a tunnel under a river
3: in 1860. That actually by 1860 that had happened. Um, actually, Damn. I actually reading it I'd read not 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 under the Detroit River, but um, there were tunnels that were dug under rivers at that point. Uh, wow. The one that I'm thinking of was extremely unsuccessful because it collapsed almost immediately. <laughs> um, but uh, there was a tunnel dug underneath the Mississippi River in Minneapolis. In like oh my God. in like eighteen oh, in Minneapolis yeah, in like so yeah, pretty far up there, like the Mississippi was not very wide up up there uh it wide it widens dramatically between there and like Iowa um but they there was a tunnel dug in the in the limestone underneath Or, excuse me there's limestone then sandstone beneath the limestone in this area and they dug through the sandstone and eventually the limestone collapsed and the tunnel failed, but, um, there was, at this point, that was in, like, 1860-something, I think, there were, there wasn't a lot of bridges over the, um, Mississippi River at that point, and, um, that was kind of their way of perhaps, you know, crossing it without having to build a bridge there, but, anyway, not relevant to this, so, um, anyway, um, those were some of his less important acquisitions, but, uh, One of the most important things that happened in the late 1860s uh, with Vanderbilt uh, came between, or has to do with him, a man named Jay Gold, and a man named James Fisk. So in 1868, Vanderbilt fell into a dispute with a man named Daniel Drew. Daniel Drew had become the treasurer of the Erie Railway. Um, And this dispute led to what was dubbed the Erie War, which is a control dispute between Vanderbilt and Drew to control the Erie Railway, which um, connected New York to um, Lake Erie. Specifically, it wasn't actually New York City. It was Jersey City, New Jersey. um, And the other terminus was at Dunkirk, New York. So, um, Daniel Drew attempted successfully to gain control of this railroad by loaning $2 million to the railroad and then acquiring control over it by purchasing uh, more stock in the railroad after that. Um, So Drew gained a fortune with this railroad by actually manipulating the shares of the railroad on the New York Stock Exchange, Um, fraudulently, I may add. Um, And uh, he would soon be challenged for his control of the railroad by Vanderbilt who wished to kind of corner the market on the New York to Erie connection? Um, but Drew had conspired with uh, Gold and uh, Fisk, who um, he he put them on the um, like the board of directors for this railroad, um, and they basically just issued a whole bunch of stock for the railroad, kind of like fraudulently. I'm not sure the exact mechanism as to how this happened, but it basically watered down the value of the stock, but they kept selling it at like the previous price. So I think that basically what they were doing was lying about how many shares they agreed. Um, this is just like classic pre-regulation behavior. Like this is, yep. this is
0: beautiful second half 19th century tactics right here.
3: Yep. Uh, and there's more that's involved in this too, which I'll get into in a second here. So um, Vanderbilt actually ends up buying a whole bunch of this fraudulent stock. Actually over $7 million of this stock. And that's in, that's in 1860s dollars. That's a lot of money. Um, and he was doing this in order to gain control over this railroad. Um, so here's the really interesting thing. Um, this Daniel Drew guy, as well as the, these, um, these other two, Gold and Fisk, they were all involved in um, the political party uh, Tammany Hall. Do you know ah. anything about them?
1: I almost feel like we've talked about them before.
3: Have we? I
0: haven't.
1: Very briefly. Yeah, I didn't I think about up. that
0: until you said it, but uh, now I'm thinking the same thing. When did we talk about them?
1: Uh, I don't know. Don't they, don't they work to better something for a group of people?
3: Irish mainly. Irish. Okay.
1: Maybe I was reading about that independently. I don't know. Hmm.
3: Well, anyway, uh, Tammany Hall was a political machine that uh, dominated New York. Um, New York City local politics as well as New York State politics for much of the, actually part of the 18th century, the entire 19th century, and part of the 20th century. Uh, It was a very, very influential organization, basically founded in like 1790 and kind of uh, petered out in like the 1960s or so. Uh, But it was pretty much at its greatest strength in the latter half of the 19th century um, under the directorship of um, a man named I forget his actual. Excuse me. Um, uh, I forget his actual name, but he goes by the name of Boss Tweed. Yeah, yeah. William. William. Okay. Well, anyway, under Tweed leadership, uh, Tammany's control over the New York City and New York political system was immense. It uh, actually tightened quite dramatically under his leadership. Um, and as as I mentioned before all of these folks that were involved with this uh, Erie Railway were closely tied into the Tammany political machine. So, um, eventually, um, Tweed ends up getting arrested and charged with a whole bunch of fraud-related charges and ends up dying in prison in 1873. But, uh, basically, the end result of this is that Vanderbilt was going up against a massive political machine that basically had control over all of New York politics at this time, so he gained, uh He failed to gain control over that railroad, but he was able to recover most of the money he had spent on those shares by uh, threatening the Erie Railway with litigation. So they they managed to just kind of give him back most of his money he had spent on the railroad. So at least he didn't suffer too much from that. But again, this man was a, at this point was a absolute rail magnate. He had tons of money. It would you know, it wouldn't have been the end of the world for him to lose a couple million. But ends up getting most of it back. So. Um, as mentioned before, he he obtained uh, Canada Southern. After that, I don't remember exactly when he got the Lake Shore and Michigan Railway, but um, that whole Erie War thing was a pretty big, uh, pretty big point in his rail history. So after this, he's getting pretty old, um, and kind of I think by was eighteen eighteen seventy six or so, he pretty much steps away from the railway. Ah, uh, one thing that's really important to note as well is that throughout this whole railway thing, he's not really involved at all in the like the daily operations of these railways. You know, um, he uh, he pretty much takes on a managerial role. He had a lot more um, minute control over his like um, water shipping businesses, but when it comes to the railroad stuff, he kind of took a back seat and let his you know let the directors and stuff do do kind of what they wanted to do. Um, But one thing he had a penchant for was uh, inspecting his railroads. He he went and did that frequently, just kind of check out what was going on. But uh, one of the last important things he did, this is actually a little bit before the whole um, Erie War thing, to my knowledge, uh, was he decided to build um, the Grand Central Depot in Manhattan. Ooh, yeah. Which is not the same thing as Grand Central Station, I might add.
0: Oh no.
1: Thanks Paul.
3: It, it kind of it, <laughs> <laughs> Um they're kind of the same thing. I'll get into that in a second. So, um yeah, so in 1869 Vanderbilt decided uh to um build the Grand Central Depot on 42nd Street in Manhattan. And actually, I mean, we were talking about this before. I think it was I think 42nd Street was also pretty much where his trains had ended, his steam trains before. Mm-hmm. Um, but even though this is 1869, people were telling him he was stupid for building it where he did. Like they were like, that's the outskirts of the city. Nobody's going to want to go there for a giant train <laughs> depot.
1: <detail."
3: laughs> <laughs> and uh, it actually ended up working out pretty well for him. So it was finished in 1871 and served as, served as his uh, pretty much southern terminus of most of his lines into New York. Um, So um, it ended up being extremely successful, in fact, and uh, fairly quickly reached capacity and then eventually had to be rebuilt at the cost of, I think it was like something like $5 million or something crazy like that. Um, But uh, when they rebuilt it, they basically added a whole bunch of capacity, added a whole bunch of waiting rooms, that kind of thing. And uh, that renovation transformed the Grand Central Depot into Grand Central Station. and uh, Terminal? pardon sorry it-
1: gcst are you stupid grand central station terminal
3: <laughs> okay well oh, anyway wh- however you want to officially turn I,
1: I hate talking to people that aren't from new york it's like if I, <laughs> where where am i supposed to get a bag of a bag of doritos and some m&ms and maybe some toilet paper besides a bodega You're uh, a scoundrel. I guess I yeah. I guess spit. I just feel bad for people who don't live in New York. Is all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I deserved that one. That's pretty good.
3: But yeah, that. Um, I mean, honestly, after that, I mean, I'm not going to dig into this too much because I know you guys have more on it. But um, at the at this point in his life, Andrew Watt was getting pretty old and wasn't in the greatest of health, and so kind of steps away from his businesses to some degree. And, uh, that's pretty much the end of his rail empire, at least under his control. Um, his rail, his rail companies go on for quite a long time after. Um, some of them, you know, obviously the railroads never stopped existing. They're, they're still a part <laughs> of modern America and modern Canada today. Um, uh, but they've been, you know, kind of purchased, traded, that kind of thing. So, right. um, they're not exactly in Vanderbilt control anymore, but, uh, Left a huge legacy and was certainly one of the greatest rail magnates that's
1: ever existed. Okay, well, I, I've got some. All I, I got a few things I can talk about. Oh uh, sure. yeah. Okay, now that I've said that, um, I got to look up what I was referencing there. Here we go. <clears throat> this this is this tweet that this woman got absolutely destroyed for. This was about two weeks ago. People who live outside of New York City and don't have bodegas, where do you go to buy two Diet Cokes, a roll of paper towels, and, oh, also let me get some peanut butter M&M's since I'm here. Why not? And, you know, what? people are just like, have you ever heard of stores? Like, <laughs> like gas stations? <laughs> what the fuck?
3: I get in my car and I drive. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's the answer to that. Yeah, that's embarrassing.
1: And before, before I bring us back into what I'm going to talk about, I was looking through the Tammany Hall page trying to figure out what, where I was reading about that. I didn't find it, but did you know Fiorello LaGuardia was only five foot two?
0: Whoa.
1: Oh, geez. They called him the little flower.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that sucks. That's, yeah, that's funny. That's a shitty
1: nickname. So much like John D. Rockefeller, I do have a philanthropy subheader on my notes that I'm going to get into. Unlike John D. Rockefeller, this one is only one bullet point long. <laughs> and uh, but it, you know it is, it is a noteworthy one so I'll give it's him a back. big one yeah. in it 1869 is, yeah. our favorite wife Frank convinced Vanderbilt to give one million dollars at the time the largest donation in American history that's about twenty million dollars in today's uh, money to Bishop Holland Nimmin's McTeary to found Vanderbilt University Located okay, where Vanderbilt, no Tennessee. It's okay,
3: <laughs> <laughs> Vanderbilt, USA, no. baby. It's it's in Nashville.
1: Okay, well, I was right about Tennessee at least. Yes, that's right. and that was kind of a guess. So cool. Uh, death and the will. The will caused some issues, and these mediums come back up.
3: Oh yeah, really? Yes. Yeah, so didn't know that.
1: on January the fourth of eighteen seventy-seven, Cornelius Vanderbilt passed away at his residence after months of bed rest. The official cause of death was exhaustion. It was the 1800s.
0: Uh, That just means old.
1: Yeah, well, it was brought upon by a myriad of chronic diseases. Which diseases? Who's to say? When he died, his estate was worth $105 million, which is about $2 billion in today's money. God. 95% of that was left to his son William and William's four sons. The remaining 5% was split between Vanderbilt's other son, Corneal, and the daughters. Now, as I'm sure you can imagine, they weren't very happy about that. But only two daughters really raised a stink. It was Corneal, and then Ethelinda and Mary actually went to court with William over the will. Because they, were, they, they said... That not only had William been influencing him late in his life, especially at the end when his mind was going a little bit, but that uh, William had convinced a spiritualist to speak to him through the ghost of Cornelius' mother as uh, kind of telling him to give all the money to William. Now, whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. But... After a lengthy legal battle and not wanting to drag the Vanderbilt name through the court of public opinion much longer, William finally ended up giving all three of them an additional $200,000 oh, no. <laughs> and then a trust of 400000 each, which oh, is still no. peanuts compared to what he got.
3: Yeah, no kidding.
1: And I, we did already, men- already mention um, this guy, Cornelius Jeremiah Vanderbilt. Eventually killed himself at the age of 51 after, you know, not being...
3: Was he the one that was, was like, the big gambler?
1: I believe so. He was kind of a troublemaker. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, Cornelius, like, hated him.
1: Right. And so since George Washington Vanderbilt died in the Civil War and Cornelius killed himself, uh, pretty much all of the millionaire descendants are through William. And it's these Vanderbilts, the progeny of William, who made the kind of, you know, like the Biltmore estate and these lavish houses. Cause Cornelius senior actually lived fairly modestly in terms of like yeah. his home is kind of a Warren Buffett type. And it was, so it was what George Washington Vanderbilt, II, who was William's son is the one who built Biltmore. And I do want to say about him, a name we've brought up before that came back. He married somebody named Edith, Edith Stuyvesant. Uh, Nothing to say about that. <laughs> no. Um, But we've got some... We've got some famous Vanderbilts kicking around today. Yes, we do. Now, the... No longer alive, but Gloria Vanderbilt, quite famous. Fashion, fashion designer, right? Yeah, yeah, fashion designer. Now, her son, Anderson Cooper, is by nature a Vanderbilt as well. So is actor recently starred in an episode of The Mandalorian, Timothy Oliphant.
3: Is he the one who also is like the star of uh, Deadwood? Not Deadwood. Um,
0: uh, Justified?
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. Could have sworn he did Deadwood too.
1: Oh, did he? I've never seen Deadwood. Maybe he
0: didn't star in it. Maybe he's uh, part of it. I don't know. Yeah, he was I was haven't watched sheriff.
3: Deadwood. Okay. I know also oh, yeah. there was a, there's a director that's uh, Vanderbilt yeah, right. and, and as well. that so uh, This guy just directs westerns
1: some, all the time.
3: Huh. It's, it's a niche. Well, there's also uh, another director that was related to Vanderbilt that did, like, uh, um, Spider-Man movies, I
1: right know. Sam uh, Raimi? Not sure. Was it the, like, Tobey Maguire ones or the Andrew Garfield ones?
3: Again, I don't know, because okay. I was just watching a video where he was kind of briefly touching on it, but I don't remember the guy's name.
1: Now, as I was talking to Greg in a, in a part of the episode that nobody will hear... um Greg, even though we may have briefly mentioned it before on the podcast, you've been to the Biltmore estate.
3: I have. I I toured the grounds. Um, It's like...
1: So let's... Just in case this is the first you've heard of Biltmore, it is, I believe, still the largest estate in the country, right?
3: It's the largest residence in the United States, and by a large margin at that. Um, I'm I'm just going to go ahead and look it up while we're talking, Um, but... I know that the uh, the actual square footage of it is. An absurd number, and I'm going to get that for you right now. Um, Where is it? It is in Asheville, North Carolina, and you would think maybe on the outskirts. No, it's it's pretty much in town. Uh, The Biltmore Estate used to be gigantic, like the actual grounds. I know it was like, I believe, originally many thousands of acres or something like that. God, Um, that's a whole town. It was eighty seven thousand. Yeah, it, it was eighty seven thousand acres. <laughs> that is oh, like several know. towns. Yeah, it's it's many square miles. Um, but uh, anyway, today the grounds are much smaller. Um, but the house itself obviously has not changed in size, uh, and is one hundred seventy eight thousand nine hundred twenty six square feet.
1: Jeez, <laughs> I live in a single wide trailer. <laughs> you know, just something to think about.
3: So it's a chateau esque style mansion. It was built for George Washington Vanderbilt II, as we mentioned, and uh it was built between eighteen eighty nine and eighteen ninety five. Um, what I can tell you is that visiting this place, it is the the tour costs a good bit of money. I want to say it's like forty or fifty bucks to tour the place. Um, but it's I I'd say one hundred percent worth it. I've never been so just astounded by architecture i suppose like and i've seen some some crazy skyscrapers you know i've seen some crazy you know you know homes buildings Um, yeah (laughs) yeah but nothing has compared to this place and not to mention so um some of the descendants of the the vanderbilt family i don't know if we'll go into this whole lot more but um many of the descendants of the vanderbilts uh squandered their money spent it on um lavish parties and live in large, that kind of thing, largely to kind of gain favor into uh, the New York elite that had been established. Uh, They really um, something we didn't touch on a ton with Vanderbilt was he was always an extremely crude man. He came from low origins. Uh, He had a very poor grasp on the English language, at least written like his his handwriting. His handwriting was like practically illegible. The man cursed like a sailor uh, just was not what you would expect for, you know, high class society, especially at the time. Uh, he was very much nouveau riche um, in, in in the sense that he was just very much an outsider in New York wealth and always resented that. But his descendants resented it a lot more than he did. And that's why they spent money on lavish parties. I know, for example, there was one, uh, one ball that they threw that cost today's equivalent of $6 million for one party. Wow. And uh, one, of, one of Vanderbilt's uh, female descendants had a dress that was electric. And it was like right after Edison had invented the light bulb and her dress had a whole bunch of light bulbs on it. I imagine it had to be plugged into a wall, which would certainly be limiting for a dress, uh, but I'm sure that was very impressive at the time. What I do know is that after that ball, they actually that was like the turning point where they actually started to become kind of integrated in New York society because people were talking to them like old chums after that. But uh, I digress. Anyway, um, yeah, some of the mansions they built that like the Biltmore wasn't the only one, but I can tell you without a doubt that that is is a striking place. Not only, I mean, even with the reduced size of the uh, like the estate, um, it's still huge and. An interesting thing, like I mentioned a lot of the wealth got squandered, but the Vanderbilt estate is still owned by descendants of of Cornelius himself today. And basically the way that they run it, I think there's like something like a thousand employees that run the whole place. Um they have like a winery. Um there's a golf course. There's the tours of the actual house. They have um a what's the word for um Basically like an indoor garden. What's the word for that? Like a conservatory or... Something like that. <clears throat> greenhouse? Uh, I'm not sure. But it's basically a giant greenhouse with all sorts of varieties of exotic plants. Um, they have one of those on site. Oh, like they a botanical appraise... garden? Yeah, there we for? go. Okay. Botanical garden, yep. Um, as well as like crazy flower gardens that are like many acres in size. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's this whole machine and it's like one of the biggest attractions in... Asheville, which is in and of itself a resort city and always has been from the start. Um and that's kind of the way that um some of the some of the wealth from the Vanderbilt family has lived on today is some of his descendants basically still own and run this this whole enterprise today. But uh, This thing is really-
0: insane.
3: Yeah, it honestly for any of our listeners who haven't seen pictures of the Biltmore, I encourage you to look it up because it's astonishingly beautiful. Um Extremely intricate, and one of the coolest things to me is that the actual house, um, unlike many of the Gilded Age mansions, uh, has not been changed dramatically inside, and actually, when you tour it, uh, things are, like, roped off, but, like, they pretty much have made the inside exactly the way that it was in, like, the 1890s. So when you're touring through, like, all the beds and all the, you know, bedspreads and all the paintings on the walls and, and basically everything looks like it's straight out of 1890 so it's like you're walking through this place at the peak of its opulence which I think is really cool one of the craziest things to me there's a dining table in there that's like 40 feet long <laughs> never, never seen anything like it in my life looking at it right now <laughs> yeah this is crazy man what, do, do you guys have
0: more stuff or are we are looking at wrapping this up I think, I think
1: we're at the end yeah I think
0: so so just this whole story, I was trying to compare it to Rockefeller sort of throughout, and it just feels way scrappier. And huh. I think the end wealth that this man had, while obviously it doesn't come very close to Rockefeller's, it, the, he achieved an insane amount of wealth, But it just came as more of a sort of surprise and as a result of like a absolute slog. Whereas like when we look at Rockefeller's story, it feels like just a straight ascendance. No resistance whatsoever. Thoughts on
1: that? Well, I mean, maybe part of it is... There's kind of two industries that Vanderbilt, like, you know, he didn't, it was, it was Mm. oil. It was all oil for Rockefeller. Oil was new. True. transport in the general sense was not, you know, there were people that were established. And so I guess it is kind of more of a scrappier thing. Mm.
3: I think a big part of it also comes down to, um, Rockefeller like started companies and then built them up and then, and then transitioned Uh. into like buying up, buying up other ones. Whereas um, uh, Vanderbilt never really, I mean, other than his like fairy lines, never really like at least the first one never really started much. He tended to kind of come into organizations that already were rose to power and then gain control and then bought out others. Gotcha. He didn't do, yeah. he didn't do a whole lot of starting businesses. And I think that largely has to do with the background of each of them um, where Vanderbilt started out working for his parents and being like indentured to his parents pretty much. And, uh Rockefeller started from um basically starting his own business from the very beginning um and kind of you know building his fortune that way um also one of the stark differences I think is just in the um personal actions and values that each of them took where like Rockefeller was certainly a more honorable man less crude And certainly they were both charitable, but it seems like that was like a core value to Rockefeller, where that certainly was not with Vanderbilt. I mean, obviously Rockefeller didn't give away as much as he could have afforded to, at least earlier in his life. Later in his life, he definitely gave away a ton more. But uh, it seems like the charitable donations of Vanderbilt were certainly more of a footnote. Yeah. Mm, That's a good point. And I've got a...
1: I've got a unless you got another point to make, Dan? That's it. Okay. I've got a kick and segue to the end because, mm. uh, Dan, you said, and you truthfully said that it doesn't, you know, he's certainly in second place compared to Rockefeller when you look at wealth compared to GDP of the country. There's two different studies that looked at this. One places Vanderbilt in second place after Rockefeller, one places him in third. Can you guess who the other one is? In the U.S.? Yes, it is. Well, you know what? I wanted to make you guess. Because it would destroy the segue. It is the topic of our next episode, Andrew Carnegie. Oh. Oh. Nice. So now, are are, are we doing one more of these magnates or two more? Are we doing Carnegie or are we doing Carnegie and then J.P. Morgan?
0: I definitely want to do J.P.
3: Morgan.
1: Okay, so we got two more. Yeah. Okay
3: also one quick fact i want to throw out about vanderbilt at one point vanderbilt had more in cash than the u.s treasury had nice
0: <laughs> that's superlative, if i've ever heard one that's why i want to talk about jp morgan because jp morgan makes that look Monday like chump change i'm looking rain. forward to it
2: round the curve come a passenger train on the blinds was Hobo John He's a good old hobo, but he's dead and gone Dead and gone He's dead and gone He's a good old hobo, but he's dead and gone Jay Gould's daughter said before she died Papa fix the blinds so the bums can't ride If ride they must, they gotta ride the rod. Let them put their trust in the hands of God In the hands of God In the hands of God Let them put their trust in the hands of God Jagle's daughter said before she died Two more trains I'd like to ride Jay Gould said, daughter, what can they be? There's the Southern Pacific and the Santa Fe. The Santa Fe and the Santa Fe. There's the Southern Pacific and the Santa Fe.